0: Welcome back to the Super Bowl edition of our PFRPA podcast. I'm here with an old friend, Ron Mix. Ron, how you doing?
1: Doing fine. Thank you, Brian.
0: Exciting to be out here at the Super Bowl.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you have to attend the Super Bowl to really understand the electricity in the air. I mean, it's actual electricity in the air. When you go to the game, it's like nothing, no game you've ever seen before. The NFL has done such a fantastic job of making it a special event.
0: Yeah, the, the entire city is decked out in Super Bowl everything, and there's so much going on across the city from the Super Bowl experience to to concerts and events. It's like a really a week long Super Bowl festival.
1: Yeah, and they've got a great band of volunteers who are, are saying kind things to you and welcome you at every, <laughs> every from the airport yeah. on.
0: I, I was impressed. I was impressed by that yesterday in town. Uh, greeters at every corner, just about. It was crazy. Just welcome you to Atlanta. So great job, Atlanta! Absolutely, put on a Super Bowl. So, back in your day, playing with the with the Chargers, Uh, not necessarily a Super Bowl game, but a championship nonetheless. It was 1963. That's correct. New England Patriots. That's correct. Char- see if my memory holds together. So the, the Chargers beat the New England Patriots, 1963, AFL championship game, 51-10? to 10.
1: It was 51-10. to 10 There and we it, go. Was, it, <laughs> it was just an unbelievable performance by the coaching staff, by everybody. You know, there comes a time sometimes when kind of magic happens and everybody, every player plays at the absolute top of their game. And that happened then. We had two great running backs, Keith Lincoln and Paul Lowe. We had an outstanding quarterback uh, uh, shared by Tobin Rote and John Haydel. We had two great defensive linemen, Earl Faison and uh, Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd was 6'9", 340 pounds. Uh, oh. His eyes looked like they weighed a pound each. <laughs> and a great, great athlete. I mean, Earl... Earl and Ernie, here's the quality of players that were. For a four year period of time, they played their positions as well as anybody ever played. And I mean, including current day. And if it wasn't for injuries, uh, they'd be hall of fame players. And Paul Lowe and Keith Lincoln, uh, they were all stars, all stars, all stars. But the thing, the problem was, uh, in those days you had uh, usually three running backs you had a quarterback. We had a great wide receiver named Lance Allworth. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the ball was distributed to everybody. And if Keith and Paul, if either of them had even, say, five more touches a game, they'd be Hall of Fame players. But anyway, wow. we were outstanding, and wow. we, were, we were brilliant that day. Let's talk about that. But I must that. point out something. Bill yeah. Belichick was not the coach of New England at that <laughs> right, time. so I don't I don't know how much that counts. Oh, and we'll get to, <laughs> we'll
0: get to that in a minute. I mean, because the, you know this Patriots team obviously something ridiculously special, uh, but let's go back and talk about. I want I want to let fans in on on what it's like to play in a game of that magnitude. Uh, it's the championship game. It is the the biggest show on earth. Right? Tell me about what it felt like going into the game as a player
1: you know this is crazy and and this story the part what I'm about to tell you has never been told and uh, (laughs) but uh, you understand that uh, most people think that you've really got to focus and concentrate on a game to be be outstanding and I'm not sure that's true I think you just have to have it within yourself that you understand you have a job to do, and whether it's in practice or in a game, you're supposed to perform it the best you can. And so here's what happened during that week. It was controversy the entire week, and the reason, uh, in fact, we almost, we threatened to boycott the game. The Chargers threatened wow. to boycott the game, and the reason was uh, the amount of money that you received per player for the game was very modest and it was based on the attendance. And so for the first time they decided, the league decided they were gonna televise the championship game in the city also where it was being played. And we felt that would cut down on the attendance and which would make our our cut even smaller. By the way, in those days, the cuts were like $1,200 to the winner and like $800 (laughs) to the loser. And that was important money. It was yeah, important money sure. because none of us made very much. We had defensive backs making as little as $5,000 a year. Wow. Not a game. Wow. A <laughs> year. And uh, any event, um, so we wanted, we wanted the league to guarantee a certain amount of attendance no matter what. The stadium only held 33,000, and I think we wanted them to guarantee 31,000 no matter what. And uh, finally they agreed to do it. But we were talking, to, I was talking to Tommy Addison, he was the captain of the, the Boston team, the New England team, and uh, uh, we were all somewhat on board of doing something about yeah. that. And so the whole week is mirrored in controversy. The coaches are mad at us as can be. Uh, I mean our own coaches, our own coaches are mad at us. And yet we go out and explode in a great, great game.
0: Obviously, you, you don't want your team to be distracted during the week, so it's, it's impressive that y'all came together at both sides, both teams, right, with all that kind of controversy. And it, it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to see because, I mean, it is 1963, and I'm talking about televising the – championship game in the community right so correct I wonder if it's the, like it is nowadays obviously assuming maybe not every household had a TV in 1963 so right it could have been it's been interesting to see how they played that out. The obviously the NFL would never do that today, right? Now, Brian, <laughs> wait
1: a minute, Brian. You're acting like we just invented the wheel in the in the, Come in the, the 60s. I mean, Come on, every, TVs hit in 49. Every, every every house household. had 63. Yeah, probably most TVs were black and white, but
0: most right. homes had TVs. Uh, I remember stories uh, from my parents. That's where it comes to me though, of not having a television when they were kids. Uh, it was probably because they their stone, stone broke, right? Yeah. <laughs> stone broke. So, anyways, let's go back to to you personally. Let's let's talk about the, you know, here we are, just a, a few days before uh, the Super Bowl. What's what's going through a player's mind? You're three or four days out from the big game. What what is it like?
1: Well, you know what what's, what's interesting about it is one thing that you come to know is that. Uh, No matter how good you've been throughout the year, your team, no matter how well it's played, uh, uh, your legacy is not created unless you win the championship. Nobody cares about it. I mean, it must must be only in America where you can't be second best. (laughs) I mean, it's just crazy. You know, the second best team in, in the history of football, for instance, like who cares? They weren't the first best. (laughs) <laughs> well, I guess that's one of the things that's this ambitious attitude we have as Americans in the striving for greatness. I guess one the, that's one of the things that makes us a great country, but it's permeated down into sports. And, yeah. and uh, if you're not the so you're just thinking that you've absolutely got to win to prove it. It's just like I know of you when you were playing and when I was playing. You wanted to play against the very best opposition players mm. that existed because th- to yourself that proved to you that uh, you could do it
0: yeah, absolutely it, you know it, it brings to mind the uh, the Jim Kelly era Buffalo Bills right I mean sure. here, here you have one of the greatest dynasties in football during that time i mean where they had four super bowl appearances right in a row yeah but they lost they lost and That's what right. a what a difference that would have been for the legacy of all of those players if they had won those games or at least the majority of them right?
1: oh absolutely like for for instance uh, uh now whenever they introduce a player say from uh from either currently or in the past and if that player has been on the Super Bowl team, th- that's the first thing the, uh, the media will say or the sports announcer will say. And he was a Super Bowl champion and blah, 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 and everything like that. And, 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 and for instance, uh, in the pub- it's got the public's mindset too. For instance, if I'm out in public and I'm wearing this great Hall of Fame ring, can you, can you see it? <laughs> This monster that's, no, that can we see it that, that screams out, <laughs> right? "Look at me! You're I'm right? in the Pro Football Hall of Fame." Yeah. But but in any event, uh, if I wear it, I don't wear it often because it because of
0: right because <laughs> you might get beat will, down somewhere. People, people will know <laughs> yeah, sure. They'll just start a conversation about it. And,
1: <laughs> and um, but w- when I wear it, uh, people will ask, "The oh, was oh, oh, that a Super Bowl ring?" And I'm such a jerk, I'll point out, there's 5,000 Super Bowl (laughs) rings. This is the Pro Football Hall of Fame ring. There's only only 200 of them. It's exactly what you said to me the first time I asked. There's a
0: Super Bowl ring. Exactly, exactly. Oh, my gosh, that's funny. But
1: but, but actually, it's kind of neat for the guys. Every player who's ever made it into a pro football training camp, if good enough to get into training camp, was a great player. Yeah, was a great player. Uh, uh, the fact that they didn't may have a long career in the NFL doesn't diminish that at all.
0: It, you know, and it's uh, you're exactly right. The weight, just the weight that we put on certain things. Like w- we know that if you played on a team, that just the fact that you played in the NFL, whether it was a, a single down or it was for years, that that. NFL shield goes with you wherever you go, right? And it's how you're announced to people. It's how, it's how even how folks introduce you all these years later. Hey, did you, he was an NFL player. Hey, there's is Ron Mix. He's an NFL player, Hall of Famer. Those things in every accolade along the way just stick with you. And I think we know that too as players, right?
1: It's that absolutely
0: big games like this, how much they matter and how it will, uh, just little ways that will impact the rest of your life. Um, it's a, you know, and you, and you almost going back to you think this is the biggest game in football and not wanting to take away anything from the greatness of the players from the Rams, um, you know, or the losing. I just was guessing the Rams were going to lose. I just put it out there, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Even though they're going to lose this game. <laughs> no, uh, you know, it's just those special points in time that go with you, like being a Hall of Famer, like being a Super Bowl champion. Those tags just stay with you forever. So oh,
1: I've got to tell you a cute story. You reminded me of it. I don't know why, but uh, about identity of teams, uh, for instance. And um, now I played for the Chargers for 10 years and the Raiders, the Oakland Raiders for two years. And the mystique of the Raider team is such that this is a common event. If somebody introduces me, like you point out, they'll say, this is Ron Mix. You might be interested to know he played professional football. Yes. And the person will say, oh, who would you play for? And I say, well... I played for the Chargers for 10 years and the Raiders for two years. Invariably, they say, the Raiders,
0: wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was uh, one of those teams that I had always hoped to play for, honestly. Because I know it carries that with it, right? It's the Raiders.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, their owner, Al Davis, uh, he was uh, my position coach when I was at the University of Southern California. Then he, at the same time I joined the Chargers, he joined the Chargers as an assistant coach. And uh, we had remained friends, but he was uh, one of the great owners in the history of the game. And he was a player's best friend. He really was. He, he, uh, he treated them uh, uh, equally with respect. He, uh, uh, he didn't try to beat you down during contract negotiations. He'd start off with a number that was very fair. And, uh, and and here's something very few members of the public know about, but uh, uh, there was never a time, like after I retired, when I went to Al and told him about some former player that needed financial help was in a problem that Al didn't automatically come through,
0: never. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, that's a big deal. I, you yeah, know, and it, he hired,
1: and, and to put one other point, he'd hire, f- more former more former of his players to the front office to coaching to scouting than i bet any other three owners anywhere
0: combined that's interesting i mean that's something i really want to look into i mean obviously being a part of the you know the pfrpa and and you know the transition period that we always talk about that's that's so difficult it's only a players coach Would uh, would see that that need to pull guys back into the game, keep them attached to it in some capacity, and you know, and Al's, you know, his his legend lives on, you know, through every. I mean, (laughs) some of his sayings that you just can't forget, like if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. (laughs) <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Oh no, he never said that. He didn't say that. <laughs> didn't say that? No, that was
1: some baseball player. <laughs> A baseball I, I never, player. I, I thought ne- that was an Al Davis thing. Oh no, and I never liked that saying. Yeah, I didn't I like never it either. Like that saying.
0: But it, it, Al, I, I think it's, I, I think it's just uh, you know his his quest and his drive to win football games what made him so compelling to me. He could, you could see it in him and just how he talked to the players and you know everything even that the media portrayed. Just that coach loved his guys. And he wanted to go win football games, you know that that's what made him such a compelling guy to me. I always wanted to dreamed of being a part of that right um so let's let's go on to the uh to the day before the big game okay and what does it feel like the the night before what are you going through in your mind
1: you're uh, you're just trying to tell yourself, just relax, just relax, because <laughs> you want to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Did you sleep the night uh, before the championship? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, but but uh, but you 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 would have to keep reminding yourself, just relax. You played this t- against this team twice before, the, yep. and, and uh, just relax, and and then then you'd think about uh, be sure to. If you felt you, you needed to review your playbook, you'd, you'd do that. But by then you're, you probably didn't, but mostly it was just telling yourself uh, to relax and you'd thought about you'd, you visualized how you'd be playing. certain uh, The visualization is like a very important part of football, a very important part yeah. of football, of imagining what you'd be doing
0: on each play. Mm -hmm. I remember the the closest I ever got was the AFC championship game. We actually lost to the Patriots. This was the 96 season, the 97 uh, playoffs. Uh, But I remember the night before. And, you know, we always have our test as offensive linemen. We'd have these little, you know, scripted things for offense. And you're drawing up the plays. Hey, where do you go on different defensive fronts? And just going through that. Again and again and again, and then going back. and tr- You're trying to close your eyes and visualize every snap, right? How, is, how, you're gonna, how you're blocking the guy, your head placement, hand placement, all of those details, right? Um, that was one of the – that moment before that game, you're right, attempt to convince yourself that you've been here before, right? Exactly. <laughs> you've, you know, you've played this game, and you can go do it. It's just another football game right <laughs> try to convince yourself that's what least. you try to convince yourself <laughs> yeah. but
1: it's so much more
0: and, and i can't you know seeing you know down yesterday at me, during media row and seeing you know the whole world's media is watching this game and here in atlanta uh, i remember experiencing a a piece of that at the championship games i mean it's not obviously to this level but it blew me away you know, especially the the first time experiencing this playoff atmosphere and then getting up the AFC Championship game. I I just couldn't believe the amount of media attention when it got down to the last four teams. So what was it like? Tell me about in 1963, what was the environment like media wise? What did it feel like as a player?
1: Well, uh, of course, they're the same thing. There were requests for uh, uh, interviews, but not many, as typical, not many for offensive yeah, linemen. Right. They were really only interested to talk to the quarterbacks, the wide receivers, right. and, and, and I don't blame them. I mean, who would you rather hear from, Lance Allworth or Ron Mix? Yeah. You know, and, uh, um, uh, but it, w- it was surprising, it was surprising uh, uh to see the massive media attention from all over the country, and it's nothing like today, by the way. Yeah. But back then, it, back then it, it really, it really was huge. And you know, and another thing about about thinking about the game, one of the things you realize, because we all have a certain amount of ego about you, and you're also realistic. One of the things you realize is that if you don't win that game. You're labeled as a loser. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know, that's just the way it is. You're not labeled as the second best team. Yeah. Yeah. You're labeled as a loser.
0: It's our American culture, though. Yeah. You know, just like we were talking about earlier. You know, I think that's part of what has made America great. Right? It's just, uh, you know, that drive to be successful. Right? So let's – Let's go to game day right now, and let's, let's briefly talk about game day. What is, in your mind, the memory that sticks out the most about that championship game in
1: 1963? I think, the, I, I think again, it was just that everybody, everybody on the team played at their absolute top level. You know, there's sometimes, no, no matter how hard you train or whatever, sometimes you just don't have it at the same level every game. And but this was a, a an instance where everybody played at their their top level. I mean it was unbelievable. Like Keith Lincoln had three. He's a running back. He had 327 cumulative yards, combination running and pass receiving. And mean and Keith was a great player, but it also meant that uh, uh, Sid Gilman and his and his staff, uh, and he had some he had some. He had a great staff. I mean, names that you now know. Chuck Knoll. Chuck wow. Knoll was on his staff. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, uh, Al, well, when Al wasn't on the staff at, at that time. He had left to join the Raiders. Um, but there was a great... There uh, 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 uh,
0: uh two football icons on that coaching staff. Bum Where Phillips. Oh my gosh, three. Bum Phillips was on the staff. Wow. And
1: it, was a, it was a great assistant coach also that went on to coach the Denver Broncos named Jack Faulkner. I mean, <clears throat> it was loaded and they came up with a game plan that was just unbelievable. I mean, when you, we have an offense that, that runs up over 500 yards. I mean, it was 510 or 20 yards. Uh,
0: it's just amazing in those days. That's incredible. What what a what a journey. So now we're going to, um, we and we talked about doing this in kind of a couple parts here. So now let's let's, um, let's kind of turn the page a little bit, and I want to talk a little about about some of the more important things I want to say that you've probably done in your in your playing career. Um, and especially when it comes to seeing injustice, and and I think that's one of the things that uh, has impressed me and endeared me to you most. Like just seeing that you you stepped out for folks when you saw something was wrong, you, you weren't hesitating to step up, and I think that's incredible. So we'll take folks into the Wayback Machine. It is America in the 1960s. It's a totally different environment. Uh let's talk about, uh, let's talk about first the, uh, the stepping out for your brothers. Um, when you, when you found out there was some racial inequality going on, what, what was happening? Tell me about the environment and what happened that day.
1: Well, you, you, you kind of have to understand, uh, back then it'd be hard for, uh, many of the uh, people in modern America and many of the. Uh, black athletes now to appreciate and understand what was going on at a time we lived in a segregated America. But the segregation of America uh, uh, didn't merely impact uh, black people. There was a a prejudice that existed that permeated all parts of the country. Prejudice against Jews, uh, uh, prejudice against Catholics, uh, Mm -hmm. prejudice against uh, uh, Asians. Anybody who uh, uh, was considered different by white america yeah and um and then prejudice against certain white people from certain parts of the country it was just uh, i don't know it was epidemic uh, but what's interesting is the role athletics has played in this athletics has always been uh, in the forefront of changing people's mind and advancing uh, racial and religious understanding and uh, my first experience of that, of really understanding the role athletics play, was at the University of Southern California, where at a major university, people come from every racial, religious, uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, background, different parts of the country. And you come together and you have that common goal, and you're working together and you're going through the same thing, and you uh, you come to realize that people are just really basically the same. They got yeah. the same uh, hopes and dreams and aspirations and hoping to better their lives and hoping to do things for their family and hoping to that, that do things for their mom and dad and that they'll do better things for their kids. And so at SC in 1959, the two co captains uh, were myself and Willie Wood. And uh, our teammates voted us captain at a time that uh, 99.5% of all the fraternities would not permit either Willie or me to join them because I'm Jewish and Willie was black. And our white Christian teammates comprised about 90% of the team made no difference to them. They just wanted, they judged people by, uh, they came to the realization of judging people by their character and their conduct, uh, not by some preconceived prejudicial uh, opinions that they have and m- many of them grew up with those uh, racial biases and religious biases. Yeah. It came to them from their household. That's where people learn things and uh, but it didn't mean anything to them. They they just came to understand that you judge people by conduct and you judge people by character. Sure.
0: You know I, 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 we talked earlier about this a little bit. I, you know I remember you know, really why sports, to me, in my opinion, just so special because you, it comes to a time where you're in that locker room where these are just your brothers. It, it doesn't even matter where, where, where color, ethnicity, all that stuff just, it goes away on the football team. What, what, do, you, what do you attribute that to? What do you think?
1: Well, I think, it, it, I think it, it's attributed to uh, just the simple fact is you get to know people. That's all. You get to know people. When you get to know people and you have an uh have an, it opens up your mind. And I think it's it's nothing more than it's nothing more than that.
0: In football you really get to know these guys. I mean and that's what makes the sport so special, right? You're you're spending almost every minute of the day with these guys. Exactly. But I, but I think even more so of I mean, you're sweating with them, you're bleeding with them, you're you're in agony with them at times, right? And it It's during those hard hardships where nothing is more revealing of character, right? When you're going through a hardship or you're trying to get something over something as a team, right?
1: Exactly, exactly, and and uh, of course it's it's not just it's not just that the same things happen uh, uh, just at universities. People come from all over the yeah. country to come to the university, and they see the same thing in their classroom. They say, see the people that people of color are just as bright as they are, just as personable, that have uh, the, the the same same
0: values. So let's talk about the uh, the the game where some of the guys walked out. They were boycotting, right? Some of the black guys on the team just walked out, and said, "Hey." we're going to boycott this game. Tell me about the environment. You were in New Orleans at the time.
1: Yeah, it was in New Orleans. Uh, There's all-star game in New Orleans. And I think it was 1965. Okay. And um, um, at that time, uh, we, were all, we would all arrive from different parts, you know, from all over the country. And um, we were given itineraries. And one of the itineraries was that the next morning we would all get on the bus and go to the first practice. And so we were on the bus and the coach was taking roll call. And the coach would call out uh, names like um, uh, Bobby Bell, and no answer. Uh, 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 Earl Faison, no answer. Ernie Ladd, no answer. Uh, and finally the coach said, it didn't get the significance that he was calling out black names and no answer. Right. And he said, where, where is everybody? And then somebody from the back of the bus said, he said, all the black guys in the meeting room, they're talking about boycotting the game. And the coach said, wh- why? And the g- guy said, oh, they, they said we've been mistreated in this city. Well, New Orleans was a segregated city at so that time. So hard to believe. Yeah, and, so hard and, to believe. Uh, and so um, I got off the bus and went to join the meeting. Uh, I was the only white guy to get off and and join the meeting. And I, uh, Cookie Gilcrest, seemed to be uh, running the meeting at the time. And I, I asked him. I said, "What what has happened?" And he said, "He said most of the guys couldn't get cabs." He said. Then we went to restaurants. We were turned away. He said. Three of the guys were turned away at at uh, at gunpoint. He said. And well, then we get to the hotel and they ask us to enter through the back door. And I said, and I said, well. Wouldn't it be better if we just stayed here and called national attention to what was going on in the city? And, and uh, Cookie said, no, it's time we actually took a stand. He said, he said that will bring the national attention. We're going to boycott the game. Now, what you have to understand is these all-star games were very important to the players from an economic standpoint. We made very little money in those days, very little. Yeah. And so if you could pick up an extra... And it was really very modest. All, I think the winner got $800, the losing team got $600. It was like important to you. Yeah. So it was a giant step uh, uh, to boycott the game. And I said, okay. I said, if you're going, I'll go with you. Now, um, and then the coaches were alerted and the game, the game then was moved to uh, Houston. It was moved to Houston that, uh, that week. And I say this to the—I was the only white player to get off the bus and actually join the meeting. Uh, but I'll say this to the credit of uh, of all the white players: I didn't hear one dissenting voice from them saying something derogatory about the black players for right.
0: causing the game to move.
1: Not not one. I mean, they all had an understanding.
0: Yeah, that's in unique. I mean, it was a it was a different time, right? In America, that's. Uh, it's almost hard uh, for me to picture that. The major
1: point of it all, besides uh, uh, the the courageous stand, was that that caused the city to desegregate. The uh, New Orleans wanted an NFL team. They knew then they were not going to get one unless they desegregated the city, and the city council, in a very short time after that, desegregated. So a group of athletes, by taking this bold stand... Uh, created a, a history that benefited millions and millions. I don't mean just people in Louisiana. I oh, mean, yeah. it would it be, and, and look how, how uh, with great pride the black community throughout the United States must have taken in what these players did.
0: You know, I think that from a player standpoint, we often lose sight of how, what a uniquely powerful platform we have at times. Uh, for change and, and looking back over history, obviously uh, from football to baseball to other sports, of how that's things like this impacting communities, impacting the nation, uh, to, for change for good for better, right? Um, what a what a uniquely cool story! I, I just I, I love it. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, there's
1: a, a Jewish directive called "Tikum Alam." Tikum Alam. Tikum Alam. <laughs> and it just means that we're all directed to to try to heal the world and, uh, and 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 we do we have to make try to make this a better place and and uh, and then so so uh, uh, i get too much credit i get too much credit for for these acts because there's just thousands and millions of people who do the same thing in their own communities and the, no special attention is ever Given to them, right. but it's uh, but it's still important. I understand that it is important uh, uh, to give a public figure attention because it it it, it I think it, it it's important that, that then it spreads the support and people know that there's other people that agree with them.
0: Ron, that's you're exactly right. I think um, you know. The fact that you're standing up for these things, and I realize the great humility that you have too, which is incredible. For today's players, there's a lot lot of injustices going on in the world. For today's players, if you could send them a message about the injustices, there's lots going on right now. Of course, we have Kaepernick and everything that he's done and the good and bad of it. Um, What would your message be to today's players?
1: You know what, I'm very impressed by today's par- players. They really, as a group, seem to have a good social conscience. Uh, th- th- speaking out uh, regularly on, on the social injustices. I think, I think it's, a, it's an excellent, intelligent, well-educated uh, group of players. And uh, just tell them to keep doing it. And by the way, from a selfish interest, uh, my current player friends uh, don't forget the pre-'93 players, their pensions are horrible. <laughs> Four times they went out on strikes that resulted in the climate today that allows you to become multimillionaires. And um, many of them are just struggling, struggling. So this next collective bargain agreement, do something with them. Raise yeah. their pensions.
0: It's important. Yeah. I, I, matter of fact, I just talked to a gentleman who uh, Played for the Bears back in the, I want to say, middle, uh, mid 60s, middle, to late 60s. And uh, th- these very issues, like just how poor the pension is, and how, you know, of course, introduced him to the PFRPA because he had some issues with his eyes. But y- you're absolutely right. Today's players need to focus on these pre 93 players and do something about this atrocious pension and get this fixed once and for all we've been talking about it now for how many years and then we're going to get this fixed and we're going to push hard on this
1: only 40 years yeah
0: it's <laughs> it's time it's time fellas let's take the vote to them that's right
1: um, you know and 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 don't stop your, your your social actions don't stop them yeah but also <laughs> look to your own house And let's take care of those older guys.
0: Absolutely right. Let's take care of our own house and our own people. You know, and it's easy uh, for folks to uh, not, you know, not remember the guys that are the foundation of this game. And uh, you're right. Absolutely right. Given the salaries that they have today, we have to do something about it. So anyways, Ron, Super Bowl week. This is fantastic. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Always amazing talking to you. We have such a always have such a wide range of things that we talk about, which I love. Uh, so thanks for hanging out with us today. Well, you're
1: just doing it, frankly, you're doing, it, if I may return the compliment, you're doing a great service to not only the athletic community, but uh, America as a whole by uh, uh, by uh, having the type of interviews you have and letting people out there uh, see that, uh, that the athletes do care about things things other Thanks than brother. just themselves. They're not, they're not a group of selfish people. I've found, in, and I've known thousands of athletes because my, uh, I'm no longer uh, a practicing attorney, but my law practice uh, was representing retired professional athletes in workers' comp claims and mm-hmm. probably represented over 2,000. And I can tell y- you and the audience that uh, easily about Ninety-eight uh, percent of them are high-quality, good people. They, they, they should—they should be proud of the players that are in their community
0: because they're good people, right? Right? Absolutely. Well, Ron, I appreciate. It. Thank you. And uh, thank you. We'll talk down the road. Good. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you.